Hello, I'm Jim Mallard, host of The Mallard Report. On The Mallard Report, along with my guest, we will have a conversation where we will share thoughts and opinions. For more information, my bio, past shows, social media links, and so much more, visit mallard.com. M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D dot com. And thanks for listening. Quick note before we begin, go over to veritiesapparel.com slash mallard and get your discount on your t-shirt and all this other good stuff. Waves a lot of Aaron over there. Uh, my guest tonight is Sheldon Krimsky, the author of Conflicts and Interest in Science, How Corporate-Funded Research How Corporate-Funded Academic Research Can Threaten Public Health. How are you doing tonight, Sheldon? Pretty good, yeah. That, that's a, that's quite a mouthful. So why don't you give me a brief? Uh, why don't you give me and my listeners a brief overview of what you put into the book? Okay. Well, the book has about thirty-five years of my work, uh, which started in the mid nineteen eighties, and I was very interested in what happens to research when the funding comes from a funder that has a, spe- a special interest. So I began looking into this, and the book contains a number of essays that I've written and published in peer-reviewed journals that describes what happens when external funders have a corporation, let's say, and they're interested in a certain outcome, and they actually fund the scientist. And the results are quite extraordinary. Maybe a lot of people would not be um, surprised, but typically the research tends to support the financial interests of the funder. And we often think of science as being independent of any other um, functions. I mean, the scientist is out to pursue the truth and really not to favor one side or another. But that doesn't seem to be the case with the kind of research that we have studied and and that's represented in this book. I guess it never crossed my mind, but when you when when I when I first got my my hands on, I went, oh boy! This I mean, obviously that's a conflict of interest when you're trying to put your product out there and you're paying the people to, for the lack of a better word, endorse it. Well, you know, it's it's. Um it's like science, certain fields of science require external funding if they're going to be able to do the experiments they need to do. And sometimes that funding doesn't come from the government. For example, if, if a scientist wants to study the effects of herbicides on people or plants, um, there's not a lot of government money to do that. So it's the um, herbicide companies that will fund it. And of course, they have an interest in research that shows that the herbicides are safe. So if the scientist getting funding from this company wants more funding, then they better say something that the funder wants to hear. It's quite different when the research funding comes from the government or from independent sources like foundations. So people have studied, like let's take a drug. Let's do all the studies that were done on this drug and put them in one pile if they've been funded by drug companies and another pile if they've been funded by government sources or by independent foundations. And then look at the outcome of the studies. Which of the studies show that there are more risks? Well, it turns out when you do these kinds of studies, you find out that the risks are considered much higher by the independent researchers than they are by the scientists who are funded by the pharmaceutical industry. Now, in terms of the public, we really need to know if this drug is safe. And the FDA, of course, reviews all the studies. And they don't say, well, we're going to give preference 
to the studies that were done by independent groups. They just pool all the studies together. So if you get a lot of studies funded by pharmaceutical companies that say the drug is safe, then the FDA will say the drug is safe. And that seems to be the way a lot of our <coughs> products are approved. For example, I'll give you an example. Um, we have a product on the market in the United States that's the largest selling herbicide in the world. It's called Roundup. You see it in the stores, all you know, you see it in the CVS stores. It's everywhere. You use it on the garden. Farmers use it on their crops, etc. The United States have uh, evaluated the drug, the Environmental Protection Agency, and they concluded that this drug does not uh, cause cancer. <clears throat> Another agency evaluated the drug from the World Health Organization. It's an organization called the International Agency for Research on Cancer, IARC, a very respected agency itself. They said that the herbicide is a probable carcinogen. They have enough evidence that it's a probable carcinogen. So why is there this great difference between one agency, the EPA, and another agency, the World Health Organization, with regard to a very popular herbicide? And one of the answers lies in the fact that the EPA accepts studies that are done by industry and that aren't even in peer-reviewed journals, whereas the other agency does not. That may be the, the reason why one agency finds the herbicide dangerous and the other agency does not. I'm going to stop by you there. The way, I'm going to stop you there for was, a second. So I can yeah. type up a report for my product and submit it to the EPA and be good? Yeah, if you have a product that, that's being used in the environment that's subject to EPA oversight, and that's particularly true of pesticides and herbicides, um, then you can do the research and you can submit your research or you can contract out the research and you can submit your data to the EPA. And they'll use that data to evaluate the product as well as other studies if they're out there. That was a big if they're out there, though. Let's be honest. I mean, wow. Well, that's the point. Um, if the government is not funding certain studies, then they're not going to be out there because the scientists cannot do it on their own. They don't just say, hey, I'm going to study this chemical, and uh, they need to have external money to pay for research assistance, to pay for laboratory space, Etc. and their own time. Just mind blown. I mean, again, this is hearing it and seeing it are two different things at this moment, but I'm not good for a radio show host to be speechless. But So we'll continue through this. So as, as the years have went by, from when you started, you, you did some digging back then, was this as common then, or has this just become... Yeah, okay. So before 1985, nobody ever raised the question of conflicts of interest in science or medicine. It just wasn't even spoken about. The assumption was that a scientist who's working in basic research, or applied research, or even medical research, that these people operated on their own ethical principles, and nothing except their desire to find the truth would ever be considered to be a factor in their research. That changed in 1985, when the New England Journal of Medicine said, you know, we're gonna ask our authors to disclose any money that they may be receiving from pharmaceutical companies or healthcare companies, because we wanna know whether or not there's a hidden bias in what they write in their articles. That's the first time 
that any journal decided it was going to ask the authors to disclose their interests. A year after, the Journal of the American Medical Association decided to do that. And then in the 1990s, a larger number of both medical and science journals began to require disclosure. Because there was disclosure, social scientists could then say, does this disclosure tell us anything about the bias in the research? By 1995, the U.S. government issued regulations. Anybody receiving funds from the government had to disclose to their university whether they have conflicts of interest. And if they do, the universities had to manage them. So slowly you saw a buildup of concern about conflicts of interest. And the federal government was concerned about the objectivity of the research that was given by the federal government. They wanted to make sure that the, the research coming out of federal funding was objective and not biased. Yeah, I, I think, I, I mean, I think we all want to know what, what we're ingesting or putting on the products that were around their house are safe. I mean... Well, that's a whole other issue. I mean, the regulations for pesticides and herbicides are so much greater than the regulations for regular industrial chemicals that you might find in plastics or that are infiltrated in clothing or that appear in products. I'll give you an example, because um, I, I just finished a study not too long ago about uh, how well we are evaluating the chemicals in our environment. Since the um, chemical laws were passed in the 1970s, there are about 86,000 chemicals, 86,000 chemicals that have been introduced into products that are in our environment. Plastics, clothing, um, cosmetics, all kinds of chemicals. These are uh, synthetic organic chemicals. These are not natural substances. We're talking about chemicals that are made in a chemical lab and that are patented and that go on to the market. Now, for 40 years, we had one law that overseen these chemicals called the Toxic Substances Control Act. It was passed in 1976. And in 40 years, with over 80,000 chemicals, only six of them, six, have been fully regulated. Six. It's hard to imagine. Most of them get into the system without being evaluated significantly, or if they are evaluated, they're only evaluated by the company that manufactures them. So when it... <laughs> I hear nothing coming out of your... <laughs> well, there's, there's, I'm just sitting here thinking, I'm looking at, I wrote down 86,000, and I wrote down six, and I can't wrap my it's head hard, around. <laughs> it's hard to, to even comprehend that. But the law, the 1976 law, which, when it was passed, it was supposed to be a path-breaking law. I mean, because before that, there was nothing to oversee chemicals introduced into the environment. There was laws to prevent bad drugs coming out. That's why the drug laws are, are more uh, rigorous. Uh, and there were also laws for preventing bad pesticides from coming on the market. But the ordinary chemicals that appear in plastics, uh, you know, a lot of people know about BPA, bisphenol A, that, that comes in, uh, in plastic materials, and there's been a lot of discussion about that and whether that's harmful or not. But that's an example of the thousands of chemicals that appear in our lives 
and the way that law was written in 1976, this is the way it worked. If you were a chemical company and you had a new chemical that you wanted to put into a product, you would notify the government that you have a new chemical and you have to designate of the chemical has to have a code. So each chemical of the 80,000 that are in our environment has to be given a CAS number, a certain number, so that they're all distinguished. But now, under the Toxic Substance, Substances Control Act, you let the uh, Environmental Protection Agency know that you have a new chemical. And the Environmental Protection Agency has 90 days, 90 days to tell you whether the chemical is dangerous or not. The burden of proof is on the Environmental Protection Agency to tell the company that they can't introduce the chemical because it's dangerous. Well, that means, how are they going to get that information? They're either going to get the information by doing studies, or they're going to get the information from the company. But it's impossible to do studies within 90 days. So if the EPA does not tell the company that their chemical is dangerous within 90 days, then the chemical goes on the market. And once it's on the market, it's very difficult to get off the market, you see. So that's how that system worked. And that's why you can imagine uh, that there were only a half a dozen chemicals that were banned within that period of 40 years. And we can name the ones that are banned, pretty much, PCBs, asbestos, and a few other chemicals were banned in those 40 years. But if you think that the government has evaluated the, 80, the other 80,000 chemicals out there, well, that's just, uh, that's just fanciful. That never happened. I'm sitting here looking around at all the different plastics I have in, in my in my reach. I've got a cup. I've got um... yeah, that's right. <laughs> and and we've learned uh, a number of things about plastics in the last twenty years. Uh, one of the things we've learned is that these plastics, if they get into your body, they can pretend that they're actually uh, a chemical that your body produces. In other words, some of these plastics have hormonal properties. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that typically uh, how your hormones work is they float around in your bloodstream and um, they link on to receptors in the cells. And they, once they link on to a receptor, they communicate to the receptor and the receptor triggers a response from the genes which produces more of the hormone. So whether it's estrogen or progesterone or some, some other hormone, uh, that's how the system works. But now if you have in your bloodstream plastic molecules, they can attach to the receptor under certain circumstances and pretend that they are the natural hormone. In those cases, you'll be getting more of a hormone than your body really wants to have. In other words, you can be estrogenized, as they say. And when they've shown animals that have been estrogenized because of plastics, all kinds of strange things happen to these animals. So we're now at the very early stages of knowing what happens to humans when these plastics are roaming around our bloodstream. Now to bring the circle around, and then we're going to treat it with a medicine that may or not be valid anyways. Yeah. I mean, so in all of our bodies, we have foreign chemicals in them that have been produced in laboratories. Uh, and most cases, we're okay. In some cases, people are particularly sensitive, and they might respond to these chemicals that are in or because they have higher doses of it 
um, then they will respond negatively, adversely. So in California, for example, uh, there was a, uh, a person who used herbicides in his profession. He was an herbicide sprayer, and he sued the Monsanto company because he came down with uh, cancer, which um, the United States uh, government agencies claim could not have been caused by the herbicide. But the European World Health Organization said, yes, it could have been caused by the pesticide. They even stipulated which kind of cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So this young pesticide sprayer uh, had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and he brought it to the jury, and there was a big trial, and the jury awarded him over $200 million um, because they concluded that the chemical had caused his cancer. Eventually, the judge uh, dropped the award, and I think he received about $75 million. So if you happen to be watching TV and see advertisements for people to come forward who have been exposed to this herbicide, uh, you'll understand that the uh, that the lawyers are now trying to find more people who may who who may have a case uh, against uh, the companies that manufacture the herbicide. But when these herbicides were introduced, they weren't tested for these things. So it sometimes takes years before all the studies are done. Um, I've done a bunch of studies on chemicals, and it seems to me that it takes between 25 and 50 years before the country bans a chemical. Think about it. Lead, it took a very long time, about 50 years, from the beginning when we first knew that lead was dangerous to when this country banned it in gasoline and in lead pipes, etc. Took about 50 years. Asbestos took over 25 years. PCBs took about 25 years before we banned PCBs. So what happens is these chemicals are allowed into the commercial system, and then at some point people start studying them. And when they study them, of course, they might produce a study that says it's dangerous, but then the industry funds another scientist who says it's not dangerous. And it takes years and years and years and court cases to resolve the issue. And therefore, that's why it takes 25 to 50 years to ban a dangerous chemical. Because you first let it on the market, and then you allow the companies to engage in litigation and to create uncertainty, basically. They create uncertainty in the minds of the regulators, say, well, we have one study that shows nothing, you have one study that shows something, so the two cancel each other out. So are there any safe pesticides out there, or should we just avoid them altogether? I mean, I do, but that's personal belief and opinion. But anyways, go ahead. Well, you know, um, I'd rather eat food that has no pesticide residues on them at all because um, I cannot be secure that the studies of pesticides that they have done um, are going to be uh, signif significant enough and to make me feel safe. I would rather have no pesticides on the food. Uh, and if, if I can't get that, I will try to wash the, the foods thoroughly and try to you know, get as much off the surface of the food as I can. But no, I mean, and, peop and different people will have different sensitivities to different chemicals. So we know this. I mean, somebody can smoke two packs of cigarettes a day and live to 100 and not have any lung problems or cancer. Somebody else can smoke two packs of cigarettes a day and they'll die of lung cancer at age 40. So the difference is 
uh, in the particular vulnerability of a person's genome. That one person has more sensitivity to the chemical than another person. So, you know, uh, some people are more sensitive to pesticide residues than other people. The safest thing to do is to try to avoid them completely. I mean, they are not natural substances. They're made in a laboratory to kill insects. That's what they're designed to do. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm still stuck on the plastic and people in their bloodstream and interacting with it. I just... Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, these things are called endocrine disruptors. And literally, that term didn't exist before 1996 or 1990, somewhere in the early 1990s. Um, the term endocrine disruptor came into existence. And before that, nobody was studying the way a plastic molecule can enter our bodies and produce estrogen in our bodies. You know, I used to think, oh, if I swallowed plastic or it came into my body, it would come out in my poop, and that would that be the end of it. I didn't think that molecules that were made in a laboratory could be biologically reactive. And that was clearly uh, a false assumption. And here, so, and, here, and here we've been thinking the, the plastic drinking straw is the problem. Well, <laughs> Yes, that's right, plastic drinking straw. We just don't know. I mean, one of the things that people should never do is put plastic in their microwave <clears throat> because the, the molecules are going to, in the plastic are going to be uh, heated up or at least um, shaken up by the microwaves, and they will enter the food. So it's a clear way to get plastic in your food by putting a plastic container with food in your microwave. Best thing to do is to take the food out of the plastic, put it into pottery, put that into your microwave. I'm sure there's a bunch of people now, right now just thinking about that, because I know I am, because I'm guilty of that from time to time as well. Yeah, I mean, we've <laughs> all done it. When I was in graduate school, they, they didn't uh, have microwaves. Uh, I don't think they did at then, but they used to um, freeze the food, put it in a plastic bag, and when I wanted a fast dinner as a graduate student, I would take the plastic bag, put it in hot water. It was the craziest thing in the world to do. What am I doing but just, I am just making sure that the plastic molecules get right into my food. I so, never, I never, that's never crossed my mind to put a, a plastic bag in there. I'm yeah. glad. I guess I'm glad I, it is. It hasn't. Yeah. <laughs> so is, well, there any, is there any good news out there? Now that we've kind of blown my mind, let's, let's reset for a minute while I... You know, I mean, the good news th that my book tells us is that there's been a tremendous awareness about objectivity and bias in science. When now when you go to a scientific meeting, there are people are supposed to stand up and tell you uh, who's paying their bills, who's paying which corporations are paying for their work. And, you know, people can make a judgment of whether or not that's going to be a bias. I mean, if I read an article that says we have a safe cigarette, I mean, if the article were written by people work, working for the tobacco company, I wouldn't even look at it because I feel that it's already filled with bias. Um, so... There's good news in the sense that since 1985, there's been a lot more awareness that uh, science can be biased by corporate funding. Um, that corporations set up their own institutes to create knowledge for the public, biased knowledge for the public. Um, many examples, I mean, the sugar industry has set up scientific uh, organizations to counteract the dangers of too much sugar. They put the dangers in fat so that uh, people can, can drink uh, sugary drinks, which can be dangerous to them because of increases in diabetes and other, uh, and other sicknesses resulting from having too much sugar. So, science, so the corporations try to create their own science 
to counteract independent scientists. Um, so we've become more aware of this. There have been more books being published about this uh, kind of thing. Um, I'm going to stop you there for a second because I want to I want to make sure I caught that correctly. That yeah. companies are going out and setting their own institutes up, and just yeah. bas- basically as a front for their their research. Yes, absolutely for 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 their public relations effort to convince the public that their products are safe. The lead industry did it. The asbestos industry did it. <clears throat> the pharmaceutical industry has done it. The chemical industry has done it. Anytime they think that the public is going to be frightened of their product, they want to create some kind of veneer of scientific information to convince the public that their products are safe. And unless you are aware that they're funding these kinds of institutes, you'll think that this is good science when in fact it's really um, it's the creation of a corporate entity. I once had my students do some research and they came up with a journal called bisphenol A. You know, that, that the material that appears in plastics. And this journal, which looked like a regular journal, I mean, it had all the characteristics of a peer-reviewed journal. It was produced by a corporation it had not one single article which said anything negative about the risks of BPA. So, I mean, that's how far corporations will go to protect their products. Now, that is just, I'm not sure which is worse, when they were just up front and just doing it or trying to smoke and mirror it now. Yeah. I think we've become more aware of these things, and that's a good thing. The public cannot possibly be aware of all the things that are happening. They have to depend upon organizations that do the research, that make these um, make, make these uh, situations available so that they understand what's going on. Because how many people have the time to be able to investigate what's going on with uh, companies and their products? You need to have trustworthy sources of information. That's really the key. For people who are confused about what's safe and what's not safe, to feel that they can go to a place and get trustworthy information that's not been distorted or created by a corporate interest. So I'm going to put you, so, on, the sp- I'm going to put you on the spot. Can you name a couple of those places? Uh, a couple of... Well, I think that the um, um, let me just think for a moment. Consumers reports, the consumers union, they don't take any money, any corporate money. As far as I know, they have independent scientists who evaluate products. I've always respected their independence. So I would say that's one example of an organization that does not take corporate money and therefore uh, at least is going to be fairly trustworthy um, uh, with, with their reports. That doesn't mean that everything they say is correct. You can't expect anyone, uh, any one source, to be absolutely correct. But what you can hope for is that they are not being influenced by the um, companies that manufacture a product. The, the, um, the fundamental principle that I adhere to is that the people who manufacture a product should not be the source, the final judgment of the safety of that product. There should be an independent entity that evaluates the products that we use in our life. Whether it's an automobile, and we're trying to figure out whether the automobile does well in a crash, we want those uh, uh, studies to be done by an independent group. Whether it's uh, uh, an airplane, 
we don't want the airplane manufacturers to be the final say of the safety of an airplane. Whether it's a drug, uh, we want to have an independent evaluation of that drug by people who are not paid by the pharmaceutical industry. Those are very simple principles. Yeah, I mean, I, you've, you mentioned automobiles, and you've, you, well, you see the crash tests, at least, at least so you know they're doing something. Yeah, now, the companies can do their own crash tests, but they shouldn't be definitive in terms of evaluating the automobile. There should be an independent group that does it that has no relationship to the company. Then I would trust it, you see. So we need trustworthy sources for information that consumers can use, whether it's chemicals in cosmetics or our drugs or the chemicals that are in our environment or in our plastics. Uh, if we want credible information, there has to be a source that we can go to. Now, there are other nonprofit organizations like the NRDC that collects money basically from dues from, from people and they have their own scientists. They do evaluations. Public Citizen uh, does evaluates uh, products and uh, does studies. So there are organizations that uh, have made it their business to be independent of the producers of the products. So I got a question from my. My, my live listeners here, which is better, it's a good question. So I'm, bear with me. I'm going to read it to you. Some okay. criti some critics of banning chemicals have too quickly have criticized activists in the late 60s and early 70s for banning DDT to save bald eagles, among other species, but at the expense of millions of lives who died from malaria. Is there a balance that can be struck between the chemicals and saving human lives with these same chemicals? That's a great question. And it really shows that your listener has been, you know, open to all kinds of arguments. So let me say a few things. First of all, DDT was banned in the United States when we really didn't have any malaria in the United States. It was not banned in Africa where there were really outbreaks of malaria. And no one who opposed DDT uh, that I know of said that... Uh, when you're looking at some dangers from a chemical and some dangers from malaria, which causes death, that you should choose, you know, you should choose the death rather than the chemical, which might have some adverse consequences. You always have to balance the risks and the benefits, or the risks and the risks. When we take a drug, it's going to have some side effects, typically, but hopefully the side effects will not be as bad as the benefits of the drug that we're taking it for. So with respect to malaria, there are a number of ways to deal with malaria. DDT was one way because it was so persistent, but DDT also had some severe effects, not only on wildlife, but on humans as well. We now, we now have a lot of research on the effects of DDT on humans. So people are criticizing Rachel Carson for opposing DDT. She was opposing DDT mostly in those countries that didn't have malaria uh, because she saw other effects from it. Um, and we, we could use other kinds of chemicals to deal with insects that were not as long-lasting and did, didn't have some of the adverse effects of DDT. So I think it's a great question. Um, malaria was used in Mexico for many, many years. They decided that they had other ways of dealing with malaria so that they stopped using DDT in Mexico. In Africa, I think there are some places that are still using DDT, and it might be perfectly justified for them. For saving lives. So which leads to the follow-up about vaccines. Are they more harmful or beneficial? Oh my goodness. Boy, there's a, you know, I think the big issue with vaccines is 
where do we find the trust? Where do we find the trust? Because there are different sources, and um, there's the pro-vaccine and the anti-vaccine, and, you know, my own view is that the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Um, and, um, I, you know, I think that the, the research on vaccines is population studies, which means that you look at a large number of people who've taken a vaccine and you study how many of them get certain outcomes, certain maybe adverse outcomes. And then you look at a population of people who didn't get the vaccine and how many of those people get adverse, the same adverse outcomes. So you wanna see if there's a difference between getting the vaccine and some adverse outcome and not getting the vaccine and having some adverse outcome. Those are the population studies that are done. And, um, and the, you know, the public health institutions try to make sure that the benefits of the vaccine outweigh the risks. On the other hand, we know that there are adverse effects of some vaccines. It's reported by the CDC even. They have an adverse effect reporting mechanism. So you can't say that there are no adverse effects, but you can't predict who is gonna have an adverse effect. That's one thing. Uh, secondly, if there is a severe adverse effect, companies um, do not have to engage in litigation. There is a vaccine court, and a person has to go to the vaccine court, and they judge whether or not the effect came from the vaccine, and if it did, they can get some compensation. Of course, if the vaccine kills somebody, God forbid, uh, there's no compensation that would, that would uh, pay for that. But, um, you know, there's no question that some people are more sensitive to vaccines than other people. And people that, who take vaccines have to know what precautions can be taken. For example, I'll give you one example. Uh, doctors sometimes like to load a lot of vaccines into a child because they don't want them to come back for too many visits. So they give them the vaccinations all at once. Well, it's generally understood that if vaccinations are separated, then you're not gonna have any cross, uh, you know, cross action effects uh, in the uh, in the chemicals that are put into the child's body. So there may be some precautionary things that one can do to avoid the possibility that cross-reactive effects are gonna occur, uh, spacing the vaccinations uh, long enough so that uh, the child recuperates from one vaccination before they get another vaccination. Um, or in the case of what was done 20 years ago uh, or 15 years ago, they were putting certain chemicals in the, vac in the, in the vaccines that didn't have to be in there. Um, and now they don't do that for infants. But uh, for many, many years, they were putting uh, thimerosal in the vaccines because um, they didn't give single doses to the children. Um, if you have a vial with multiple doses and you stick in the needle once to, to take out a dose, then you're introducing bacteria into the vial. Um, and in order to prevent contamination, uh, they used to put into the vial a certain antibacterial agent um, called thimerosal. And some people thought that that chemical might be dangerous. Uh, it, it was uh, a kind of neurotoxin, but of course it was given in very, very small quantities. But if they only gave the child a single dose and didn't have a big vial, then they wouldn't have to put the thimerosal in in the first place. So there are all kinds of middle ground that uh, consumers can be aware of to try to prevent the possibility of an adverse outcome.
No, I caught a line in there. I'm just gonna I'm gonna ask the question because it's running through my head now. You said there's not as many chemicals in infant vaccines now. I'm an adult. I'm a little concerned. Is there a lot of wild chemicals chemicals in my flu shot? Well, I'm not sure what the what they're called adjuvants. Adjuvants. I'll give you an example of what an adjuvant is and what it had been in a vaccine. <clears throat> Human papillomavirus is now one of the more popular vaccines. Uh, you may know it's heavily advised for young girls before they reach uh, sexual maturity uh, because um, it has been shown to prevent cervical cancer. Okay. Um, and it's also advised for young boys, teenage boys, because they can also get uh, some kind of cancer, mouth cancer, etc., or uh, cancer of, of a sexual organ uh, from um, being exposed to the virus, papillomavirus. So when they created the vaccine, um, people did not know that there were certain traces of aluminum that were put into the vaccine. Now, why in the world would they put aluminum into the vaccine? Well, the purpose of the aluminum was to activate the immune system, which made the immune system work more effectively with the components of the vaccine that was put into their bodies. Uh, you know, so if a person were extremely sensitive to aluminum, then they might have an adverse reaction to the vaccine, not because of the vaccine, but because of the aluminum. And as a matter of fact, in the, um, in the clinical trials that were done, with that vaccine, the people who were told that they had a, um, you know, they would divide up the uh, um, subjects into those that were getting uh, the vaccine and those that were um, getting a placebo. Placebo is the non-vaccine. But the people who got the placebo didn't realize that the placebo contained aluminum. Some of those people reported that they got ill. So it becomes a bit confusing. Uh, even the people who got the placebo without the vaccine had gotten some illness. Of course, if you're trying to figure out whether the vaccine is dangerous, then you're always going to compare the adverse effects with the placebo. And if the people getting the placebo have the same adverse effects as the people with the vaccine, then you conclude it wasn't the vaccine. But the placebo is supposed to be, have nothing that's dangerous in it, like a water pill. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm sitting here thinking I, I shouldn't be getting any, any. I mean, I should be getting sugar. Right, but people who were given the placebo, it had aluminum in it. And there's a book that has just come out recently uh, called the HPV virus on trial, and it's published by um, uh, Skyhorse Press. One of the authors is a, a lawyer at NYU, Mary Holland, and uh, I was my eyes were were wide open when I read the book because I learned a great deal, and I'm you know I'm a pretty good uh, reader, of, especially of. Of, of pharmaceutical issues, and I wasn't aware of this itself. So, you know, it takes a lot for consumers to be aware of what's going on. Uh, but ultimately, though, you have to make sound judgments based upon trustworthy information. <clears throat> I think it's uh, not a good idea for anybody to completely abolish all vaccinations. I think that's, that's a disaster. On the other hand, there's a middle road to take to know, well, if the vaccine is not required, um, you have to decide whether the benefits are worth the risks. 
and you need to have good sources of information to help you out. So we're going to kind of grind gears here for a minute because this is kind of a different question. Another great question from my listeners. I love this because that's why I kind of like having this little live aspect to it. When Big Pharma risks its own capital on a new effective medication in the marketplace, how long should their patent last and how long should their monopoly, I, I missed the air quotes there, monopoly be protected? You know, the patent system has been around for a long time, and ever since Thomas Jefferson created it. Um, and um, I don't think there's a, a simple, ordinary person principle <coughs> that tells us uh, how long a person should have monopoly over a particular product or a particular process. It used to be 20 years, uh, et cetera, or 17 years, and um, depending upon, you know, they changed it recently. I don't have a principle that I could go by, a principle of justice or a principle of equity or something that would guide a decision for me about how long the patent should be. I mean, there are economists who study this. Uh, there's a whole... Um, research community of patent lawyers and, and patent policy people. I have never seen a principle which says this should guide how many years a person should have the control over, uh, over a substance or a patent. Um, I would say, though, that we should take into consideration when we make such a judgment uh, the cost of a patented drug that's so valuable to society um, uh, when it costs tens of thousands of dollars and people can't really afford it. Uh, and we, we, we need to have um, generic drugs uh, come in so that people can afford the drugs that will help them, um, you know, survive. So that should be part of the system. Um, you know, uh, when healthcare is a factor, then patents should not be so long that they keep people from getting the drugs they need um, for their uh, health and well-being. So, yeah, I, that's not an easy question. I, there's pros and cons running from my head, but we'll get this. Uh, conspiracy theorists claim that cancer will never be... A, that a, that a cure for cancer will never be announced since there's too much money in researching a cure. What do you think? Yeah, well, that's also a great uh, thought. I remember uh, uh, some um, years ago uh, when I was part of a study group in my younger years, a cancer study group, people from Harvard and MIT and Tufts, myself, and... Um, and I was, you know, trying to understand the war against cancer, which started in 1969, uh, actually, uh, under the Nixon uh, administration, uh, passed in 1970, which was, by the way, supposed to find the cure to cancer. That was the goal of the war against cancer. And we've seen it uh, hasn't come close to that, but people can be made to live longer. But I remember reading a congressional hearing in which a person spoke and said, you know, um, our job is to uh, find a, uh, a cure for cancer because we can't uh, prevent it uh, because there's too much money involved in the industrial system to try to stop all the chemicals from getting into the environment. So we might as well focus on a cure and not on prevention. And I remember that very, very well. And I think it's probably very true. Given the way our chemical laws are created, um, there's no real effort at prevention. I mean, what I discussed with you before about 85,000, 86,000 chemicals, and the fact that only six of them were fully regulated and banned gives you an idea 
that we're not really interested in prevention. If we were interested in prevention, then instead of spending 25 years to 50 years to eventually uh, ban a chemical, we would spend 25 to 50 years in doing the studies necessary before we allowed the chemical to enter the system in the first place. Uh, you know, <laughs> now, given the way our, our economic system is structured, no company would want to spend 25 years evaluating a chemical before it was approved on the marketplace. So this person who made that comment is probably, um, you know, making uh, a sound statement about the way our uh, institutions, the way our regulatory institutions, and the way our industrial institutions are organized. The only hope for, uh, for consumers is that they understand when um, something is made of things they don't understand. Like if you don't understand the ingredients of something, then maybe you shouldn't buy it. I mean, you know, the, the one thing the consumer can do is not to buy something. Some of the uh, people, the listeners, may remember the Alar scare. Um, Alar was a chemical used uh, in fruit trees, mostly apple trees. It was not a pesticide, it was a growth promoter. The purpose of Alor was to make sure that the farmers could, um, the, the apples would ripen uniformly, so when they brought in the farm labor, they could bring them in efficiently and have them uh, pick the, uh, the fruit all at the same time, uh, since the fruit ripened in a uniform way. It turns out that Alor was found to cause cancer in mice. So, but it wasn't banned by the EPA. The EPA said it didn't have the, uh, the legislative power to ban Alor because it was already on the market and it didn't meet the bar for banning it. So what happened was the Natural Resources Defense Council uh, paid for a study and instead of publishing the study, they decided to give the study to 60 Minutes. <laughs> 60 Minutes reported on the study, and within days, nobody was buying apples or apple juice. The entire industry started to go tank. <clears throat> so the consumers said, we don't want to buy this stuff. We don't want that chemical in our apple juice or on our apples. And if consumers know that there are foreign chemicals in things, they can decide they don't want it. It's not worth the risk. So, Sheldon, we've got about a minute left. Where can people find you and find the books and all that good stuff they need to know before we run out of time? Well, the, of course, the book is published um, by <coughs> Skyhorse Press, and they can... Um, they can find me by Googling my name, Sheldon Krimsky, K-R-I-M-S-K-Y, and get to my website, which is a Tufts University website. All of my studies that I've ever done on conflicts of interest are open access. Anybody can download them. Um, I wrote them, and I give them out freely to anybody who wants them. Um, and as far as the book uh, is concerned, it it opens up a world to people to understand uh, how we can make science more dependable and less biased, and how can we understand um, when an external funder Use funds science, we have to be very cautious. I want to thank you for joining me tonight, Sheldon. Thank you very much. Past shows, social media links, and so much more. Visit Mallard.com. M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D dot com And thanks for listening.
Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.